If you have a Bible with you, you would uh, want to open it to 2 Samuel chapter 18. No, excuse me, chapter 8. Our text will be the entirety of chapter 8 today as we continue together looking at the life of David, a man after God's own heart. It was St. Augustine who said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I think Augustine was close to right on that, right on target. As we see, ultimately, everything in chapter 8 pointing beyond itself to the son of David, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now king over the people of God at the right hand of God and one day come and bring the kingdom in in its fullness. And so what we are seeing as we look at the life of David are what are called partial or um, first level fulfillment of God's work in the world. Here the kingdom in reality does begin. But ultimately, we will see the kingdom in its fullness when the king returns and everything will be made right. Uh, With that said, hear now the word of the living God. Before I do that, I, I always like to read the Bible with this quote in my mind. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. The Bible has feet. It chases after me. The Bible has hands. It lays hold of me. Would to God today that that would happen in our worship together as we sit under the preaching of God's word. Chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took meth out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Azer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Azer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Azer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadad-Azer, David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard 
that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad Azer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad Azer and defeated him, for Hadad Azer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver and of gold and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil on Hadad Azer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahutub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Saraiah was secretary, and Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. I think I should get an A-plus for all those names. Uh, they are difficult. You know what they told us in seminary? They told us in seminary, just pronounce it with confidence like you know, and people will believe that you got the name right. With that said, though, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessings on his word. Father, how we long to hear you speak to us. You've put that desire in our hearts when you saved us and gave us a new heart, a heart that is not of stone but of flesh, a heart that is responsive and soft and willing to bend uh, at the uh, voice of your word. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would now work this word into our souls that we may uh, produce or may bear as the Spirit produces fruit in us. We may bear that fruit to your glory. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, I love these chapters in the middle of 2 Samuel. They're some of the best chapters in the entire Bible and some of the best chapters, especially in relation to David as king. But I have bad news for you. After we get through the next chapter, chapter 9, things start going downhill. Because David is not Jesus. David is a sinner saved by grace. And David is going to make mistakes. I will point out one before we leave today that is a serious mistake as David uh, celebrates his kingdom. But today, let's all be happy till the very end because some good stuff is going on. Among the promises that the Lord gave to David were the promises to make of him a great name, to appoint a place for my people Israel and to give you rest from all your enemies. We uh, see that in verses 9 through 11. These things happened in the events of chapters 8 through 10. 
David made a name for himself by his conquest of Edom, and throughout the chapter, the Lord extends the boundaries of Israel. By the end of chapter 8, the territory that David directly controls uh, or that was subject to him had been doubled. So he doubles the size of his kingdom. By the way, just for your information, the Bible is not chronological, okay? Because when it mentions David knocking out the Philistines, he did that before some of these other events. So what we have is the writer of 2 Samuel are taking these events thematically and weaving them together primarily to show us that the best promise keeper in the universe is God, not us. I remember the movement of the promise keepers. Some of you may have remembered that too. And while there are some good things to be said about it, the one thing that should have been said about it that I don't think was ever said about it is there's really only one promise keeper. And that is the Lord above, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is worthy of your trust. But we're going to see in David here uh, just model for us how God is beginning to fulfill and keep what promises he has made to his people in this chapter. This chapter uh, is organized geographically in a way that reinforces the point that the Lord had given Israel a place, and not just any place, but the place he had promised them. And so David's conquest began with the Philistines to the west, and then he fights Moab to the east. After that, David turns north to fight against Hadad-Azer of Zobah, and his wars ended with battles against the Edomites in the south. And so the inclusion of these people and these cities are basically to show us from north to south and east to west, the Lord has expanded his kingdom for his people. One day, the boundaries will be extended across every direction in our world when the new heaven and the new earth comes into being and Christ will reign as king over all. But here, God fulfills initially the promise of his kingdom, extending beyond the conquest made during the period and age of Joshua in the taking of the land uh, from the Canaanites. And so this is a big moment in the history of Israel. This is huge. And so listen carefully as we go through it. David extended the kingdom to the four points of the compass, symbolizing the extension of David's kingdom to the four corners of the earth. The boundaries of David's mini empire here coincided with the boundaries that Yahweh or the Lord had promised to Abraham in the book of Genesis where he tells him from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, to the Euphrates. Hadad-Azer's rule extended to the Euphrates and scripture tells us that the Philistines were related to the Egyptians and David fought in the south against the Edomites who were extended from the Dead Sea and south and David was the seed of Abraham as it were who possessed the land. The Edomites if you'll remember are related to Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau. Well the Edom is his seed and the Edomites were always I guess their biggest most notorious moment was when they have refused Israel safe passage into the land. 
And so his conquest is quite impressive here in the period of time it took. One of the key words in chapter 8 here, and I'm going to get to the four points in a moment. This is all background information. So I know some of you are looking, he hadn't even said anything about point one. You don't listen like I do. That's how I listen. Because if some guy's giving me an introduction or something, I'm get to the point. And here's the point. I'm an impatient listener. And so I'm sympathetic. But anyway, one of the key words in this chapter is the word smite. There's a whole lot of smiting going on in chapter 8 and smoting. David does it five times. I think five times it's mentioned that smiting everything that came within reach, the Philistines, the Moabites, Hadad Azer of Zobah, or the Edomites, several of these people became tribute bearers to King David. And so uh, David took gold, uh, shields from Hadad Azer, bronze from Hadad's cities, when Toy of Hamath heard about David's defeat of Hadad Azer, he sent tri- tribute because David had delivered Toy from Hadad Azer. First, David smote, then he plundered, and the plunder eventually became holy, uh, consecrated to Yahweh. It almost looks back to Israel coming out of Egypt, remember, during the Exodus, during the redemption, and they plundered the Egyptians before they left. And what they plundered eventually became of use in the tabernacle. Here, they're plundering all of their enemies during the reign of David, and all of the plunder is brought back, and all of the tribute is taken, ultimately for the purpose of building the temple. And so that's what's going on in this chapter. And it is a rather amazing thing. All of this bronze eventually went into the temple where there were 12 horse, uh, 12 uh, bowls underneath the laver uh, that was called the bronze sea where sacrifices were offered uh, before the Lord in the temple and so that's what's going on here and it's a rather remarkable thing quite a victory for the people of God and so chapter 8 begins with a summary statement about David's wars with the Philistines which refer back to the battles of chapter 5 as a result of these wars, David took Metheg Amah from the Philistines. Now, this is sometimes thought to be a place name, but there's other evidence here. This name of this city, the better interpretation, is that it means the bridal of the mother, understanding bridal as a symbol of rule and mother as of a mother city. Controlling the bridle of the mother means taking control of the city of the Philistines. The Philistines were always a thorn in the side of Israel. Here, David has defeated them. The longer section of this chapter has to do with David's victory over Hadad-Azer of Zobah. Hadad-Azer means Hadad is a help. I don't know if you ever remember singing a hymn, Here I lay or rise my Ebenezer. You ever heard that word Ebenezer? You know Ebenezer Scrooge, obviously. Well, uh, Aben means stone. Azer means one who is a helper, one who is an assistant. Hadad is the name for the storm god Baal. And you know that Israel often worshipped in its uh, sinfulness 
worship the god Baal and the prophets of Baal prophesied over Israel and they worshiped him because he was the storm god he was the fertility god he was the economy god okay he was the one that would produce it was said if you offered sacrifices to Baal he would cause rain to fall and produce uh, crops that would take care of the food requirements of the nations. But of course, with Baal, there were temple prostitutes. There was all kinds of ungodliness, wicked stuff going on. And so, Hadad Azer means Baal is my helper, my aid, my assistant. That's what his name means. Just as God, when he brought the people of Israel out of Israel, Yahweh did, and the ten plagues were in reference to the ten major pantheon of gods over uh, Egypt. So also, in each of these cases, you see where Yahweh gets glory by destroying a king who regarded as Baal as his aid and assistance. And so, uh, Hadad Azer. Uh, was relying on Baal for help, but Hadad-Azer was forced to return to the Arameans of Damascus, and neither they nor Hadad provided much aid. Meanwhile, Yahweh was a help to David, and he saved him. That's what the text literally says. Hadad-Azer's kingdom, Zobah, was... uh, a region to the north of Israel, populated primarily by Arameans or Syrians. And there were Arameans of Damascus as well as Arameans of Zobah, extending from Zobah to Damascus as far north as Hamath. Now, I know this is hard to figure out without a map, but what I'm trying to get you to see is this was a big moment in the life of the kingdom for David, defeating Hadad, was thus essential for David to ensure the security of Israel, especially from the north. And so he did that. And David took the initiative uh, by attacking while Hadad was on his way toward the Euphrates to restore a base of power that had been lost, and he captured a huge number of horsemen, chariots, and infantry. He disabled the horses, keeping 100 chariots for himself, but not breaking the law by increasing his chariots far, uh, and that force beyond reasonable limits. You'll read in the Old Testament all and all, over and over again that Israel was not to trust in horses and not to trust in chariots, but rather trust in whom? Yahweh, their God. And so that's why David did what he did, PETA notwithstanding, because uh, God told him to. Now, the word for shield is rare. Some have suggested that it literally means quiver. In any case, the weapons were ceremonial, golden weapons or golden shields. Some kings of Israel had similar golden shields. Bronze taken from the towns, as I already told you, was part of the bronze sea in the temple. The sea on the back of the 12 bulls represented, among other things, the sea of nations borne up by the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was appropriate that the sea itself was made of bronze taken from the nations. Israel was always to be a light to the nations. Israel was the foundation upon which that would occur in that day. Because David was attacking an Aramean king, the Arameans in Damascus counterattacked. 
This is a typical pattern in the Bible. Israel often provoked attack, and then Israel defeated their enemies in a defensive battle. In a large measure, that's how Joshua's conquest was accomplished, and its sequence of events in David's renewed conquest. David won such a decisive victory that he was able to station or garrison or, or governor in Damascus. Arameans became servants to David and a tributary state as Yahweh showed himself superior to Hadad, which is Baal. David's conquest of Damascus not only kept Hadad Azer at bay, but also brought David, an ally to the north, Hamath, whose capital city was some 120 miles north of Damascus. As a result, David had Hadad surrounded, and he also received tribute from Toy, the king of Hamath. This guy's a real politician. Let me explain to you why he's a real politician. Toy had been at war with Hadad Azer, and the Hebrew phrase, a man of war, suggests the war was long-standing. However, because David defeated Hadad, Toy considered him a savior and gave tribute, sending the tribute by his son. And it says here his name was Joram. But in 1 Chronicles 18, the son's name was Hadaram, which means Hadad, or Hadad, is exalted. Hadaram apparently changed the name to Jor Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. <laughs> Was that a smart move or what? He sent his son, changed his name, to come into David and to pay tribute to the king. Now, what are we seeing a picture here of? We're seeing people subdued. We're seeing people defeated. We're seeing them conquered. And then we're seeing others come and submit themselves to the rule of David, paying tribute or giving of their wealth to the nations. And so the wealth of the nations is brought together for the people of God as a redemption is accomplished in this particular text. Toy and his kingdom were apparently not only politically saved by David, but ultimately saved to become Gentile worshipers of Yahweh. David was not only successful in war, but he was a just and fair ruler over Israel. And that's what I need to spend the next few minutes talking about. Uh, but we see that the Lord had made David's name great. Obviously, his name was exalted by the Lord himself. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And therefore, his name was made great among the nations. Uh, I think I forgot about Edom, though. I want to talk a little bit more about Edom. Uh, some have suggested that David making a name for himself suggests that this was something quite different from what the Lord had promised as a gift was this name an autonomous achievement by David, implying that he was getting a little too big for his boots. It's unlikely, however, because God's gifts do not necessarily exclude human agency. David defeated is entirely consistent with the Lord gave victory to David. 
Just so when David made a name, verse 13, anyone who heard the Lord promise to him, verses 7 through 9, should recognize that behind David's activity was the faithfulness of God with his promise or to his promise. As I understand the Christian life and life in general, our life is both gift and task. In other words, everything we do, everything we accomplish that is worth, uh, redemptively has worth, is because of the grace of God. But it is also because of responsible participation by human servants. And so uh, it's kind of like a farmer I was talking to one time uh, when I pastored my first church in a very rural situation. Uh, his fields came to the back of the manse or the house I was living in as pastor, which supplied me with an endless supply of mice. I used to set traps at night, go to bed, and as soon as the lights went out and I was just about to fall asleep, they'd start popping, as many as 10 to 20. I, fried, uh, I was cooking eggs one morning. Uh, this will be encouraging to you. I was cooking eggs, and I reached up above the vent to open the cabinet to get some seasoning. Two mice jumped out, landed in the frying pan. Needless to say, I did not eat those eggs. But I went to the farmer, and I said, you know, you're scaring all the mice in my house. And he says, yeah, I know. He said, we need to get a cat for you or something, maybe three or four cats for you. And I said, well, I'm not really a cat person. But I said, you have the neatest, nicest farm of anybody I've seen in this community. I said, I'm really impressed with how productive it is and all of that. I said, the Lord has really blessed you. And you know what this farmer said to me? He looked at me and said, you should have seen it when the Lord had it by himself. <laughs> now that is disparaging in a way. But there's also some truth there. The Christian life is both gift and task. Do we participate? Are we responsible to give it all of our mind, soul, strength, and body, all of our heart to, to, to live the life with passion for the Lord? Yes. We're never to be passive automatons or robots. We're called by the Lord. He gives us commands. He expects us to participate. But it isn't self-generated energy. It is energy produced by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But we still participate. And so this is what we see David do. And that's why he made a name for himself. A name that was spectacular in a God-centered kind of way. Now... God's gifts do not always exclude human agency. So David made a name, and behind that activity, of course, was the faithfulness of God and his promise. David's fame is associated with a particular victory in the Valley of Salt. Had to be somewhere near the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea was where the Edomites were. Uh, this reference to Edom here has encouraged many uh, scholars to translate and amend Hebrew Aram to Edomites. In Hebrew, these two words are very similar and could easily be confused. Edom was southeast of the Dead Sea and may well have had a valley known as the Valley of Salt, where Aram refers to a wide area well to the north some distance from the Dead Sea. So more than likely, this is Edom. 
Whether the victory led to David's fame was over the Arameans or the Edomites, it is clear that he did gain control of Edom, thus extending his influence well into the south. Now, I want to pick up here with the last three verses of the text. Uh, there has been a repeated emphasis throughout this chapter on the comprehensiveness of David's rule. This is conveyed with the recurring word, all, all Israel, as well as the wide geographical area covered by this chapter. And this corresponds to the extensiveness of the promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. It is fitting then to sum up the chapter, so David reigned over all Israel, verse 15, all Israel. His reign entailed victory over all those who opposed his rule and threatened his people and peace with those who welcomed his rule and the wealth of the nations being turned into the service of the Lord rather than the glory of men who oppose God as king and his kingdom. The state of the affairs is described as follows. And David administered justice and equity. I do, I do not like this word equity mainly because of the current uh, political climate and the way that word is used in describing. The word is not equity. It's sadiq in Hebrew, and it means righteousness. Righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Those are big issues in God's kingdom. Doing justice and righteousness before the face of of the living God. And I want to talk about that for a moment because I think it's important for us to hear this and consider it. This is the first of many um, uh, occurrences in the Bible of the phrase justice and righteousness. Once uh, previously, the same two words have been used together uh, in reverse order, God said of Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. In King David's, this promise of God reached a remarkable fulfillment. He did justice and righteousness for all his people. Subsequent to David's reign, justice and righteousness repeatedly represents what can be expected from the promised king in David's line, what can be expressed from God himself, what is lacking when people are no longer enjoying the goodness of God's kingdom, and what God requires in the behavior and lifestyle of his people. Justice and righteousness should probably not be understood as two distinct concepts, but rather as a wonderful reality, rightly described by these words, justice, that is, righteousness. The words sound sort of redundant in English, where justice and righteousness are almost synonymous. The Hebrew is a little more subtle. Justice represents a word that plays an important role in the story of the book of Samuel. For example, Perhaps with a note of irony, 1 Samuel 2.13 speaks of perverse justice of the priest of the people in the days of Eli. This was decidedly unrighteous justice. Samuel's sons turned out to be no better than Eli's. 
They perverted justice. When the people demanded a king like all the nations, Samuel solemnly warned them that justice of such a king would be the same kind of justice that Eli and Samuel's sons had delivered. Then when Saul was appointed to the king as their king, Samuel spelled out the justice of the kingdom, rights and duties of kingship. That was what was required uh, of a king over God's people. Later, David's dealing with various groups was called justice. Now we learn that King David did justice that was righteousness for all the people. Righteousness also represents a Hebrew word that is not exactly captured by the English noun. It's more than a moral principle. It's action and behavior that is right and that puts things right in the situation and the relationships in view. Righteousness is a major theme of the Bible. God himself is righteous. He acts to put things right. He acts to save his people, which include acts of judgment against his enemies. And an act of undeserving love toward Israel can be called righteousness also, the righteous deeds of the Lord. Even the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God setting people right with him. And so righteousness is a huge issue and is displayed throughout all of God's doing. David's kingdom of justice and righteousness was a remarkable phenomenon. To get a sense of that, we'd have to read promises in the Psalms over and over where it's made that the anticipation here is the kingdom of Jesus where the ultimate enemy is defeated, the wealth of the nations will be brought to New Jerusalem, and the king has been given a name that is above every name. The just and the righteous kingdom was ordered. And so we see here the concern for justice. Now let me ask you a question. Do you have things in your life, things in your experience, things at your work where things just aren't right? Maybe you've acted in a way that was pleasing to the Lord and you had to pay for it. You were were, um, persecuted for it, or perhaps treated as lesser for it? Are there things in this world that you look at in our culture and society that just aren't right? They never will be right until King Jesus returns and sets them right. But it is the responsibility of God's people to be concerned about seeing justice and righteousness being done in our world. And so that expands our responsibilities into areas that have often been the commitment of people who are more liberal theologically. Uh, Let's say the Methodist or some other uh, people in uh, our times that are very good works oriented, very concerned about the poor, very concerned about the alien, the immigrant, very concerned about the brokenness of the culture, very concerned about the... um, Uh, oppression around them and we as believers in Jesus Christ have the theological not only word but imperative to be engaged with seeing justice flow like a river uh, in our day and so we should be involved anywhere we can in trying to right that which is wrong ultimately 
Uh, that will be the work of Jesus when he comes. Understand that the kingdoms of this world are always in resistance to the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. Also understand that as David defeated his enemies, you and I have enemies. Did you know that? Our enemies are the holy uh, triumvirate of wickedness, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? And not all these things are under his feet. Not all the enemies of God are under his feet. Therefore, as kingdom citizens, we engage in warfare with the powers of darkness. We engage in warfare with our own sinfulness that still remains. We engage in warfare with um, the world. That is, we're swimming upstream in a downstream world against the canons and rules a fallen culture, the corporate flesh of humanity is what the world system actually is. But God's vision for his kingdom ultimately has to do with the righting of wrongs. There will be, in the coming of Christ, vindication. Vindication. And I look forward to that day, as I know many of you do. Now, David's kingdom is ordered. I don't want to get too much in detail here. Joab, we've heard of him, right? Joab was quite a warrior, quite an asset to David, but also a big liability. He's a mixed bag, but he was there. We'll see more of him until later he makes a bad decision. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. That's somebody who just records um, the king's edicts, sort of what the word means, recorder. He's a public official. Zadok was, of course, of the priesthood uh, because of Ahimelech and Ahatub, and Abiathar were priests. Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was over the Cherethites and the Pelites. Now, these is the name of the administration, and the two priests, of course, represented the priestly family. But I wanted to get down to the very last phrase in the verse because this is an uh-oh moment. And David's sons were priests. Who's supposed to be priests? Levites. Are David's sons Levites? They're not. What are they? They're of the tribe of Judah. Why did this happen? If you know, come and tell me, because I don't. But why would he appoint two of his sons as priests? Who later on, these two sons are going to be mixed up in uh, the attempts to, of one of the sons to steal the throne from David. Apparently, they were priests who were appointed to function within uh, the home in, uh, of David, the palace where he lived, and they were sort of personal priest to David. Uh, he does that, though. But what we're going to see in David in the future, not right away, but in the future, is that when God blesses us, pours out his grace upon us, establishes us, watch out. Watch out. Keep watch over your heart, especially when God blesses 
sometimes beyond measure, our hearts easily assume that now everything with God is groovy and cool and neat. And I can kind of slack up and do what I want to. And we're going to see a great king bottom out because he didn't heed this. The king we all really need is the one who didn't bottom out, the one who didn't sin but was willing to take our sin upon himself and suffer the judgment for it so that we sinners can know God in an intimate way. While David is great, while his name and probably one of the greatest people in the kingdom of God, he pales in comparison to his son, not Solomon, immediately Solomon, but ultimately the Lord Jesus, the son of David, Romans tells us, who came to do what no other king could do. First, to suffer for his people, not take, 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 as Emmanuel said in the Sunday school class when he's talking about kings, he said, kings are just people who take, 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 never enough, never stop, keep taking, taking, taking. Jesus is a king who did what? He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. What a different kind of king he is. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word and what's here and how it speaks to us about ways in which we need to be absolutely adoring you, on our face, worshiping you, singing your praise, proclaiming your greatness and glory. And yet at the same time, this same word tells us how we ought to be on our face before you because of our sinfulness. And to be grateful for the unspeakable gift that redeems us. That also tells us how we, as citizens of this kingdom, who are to be salt and light in the earth, are to care about things like justice and righteousness. And to be involved in seeing that changed as much as is within us. Now, Father... As we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are grateful, who are absolutely overwhelmed and overjoyed by the way that you love us, that we cannot help but express our love towards you by giving back to you a portion of that which you have so faithfully entrusted to us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.